Marshall and Sagar here. Welcome back to The Realignment. I think it's actually helpful to start with the idea of a third party that's somehow going to disrupt the two-party system in the U.S. Reason why we never get that third party that disrupts the duopoly in the U.S. is because we have a first-past-the-post, winner-take-all electoral system, uh, which makes it very hard for third parties to compete because voters don't want to waste their votes. Everyone, we have the episode that a huge percentage of you have been begging for. Every single time someone asked us about third parties in the questions, we poo-pooed it. We said it was stupid. We said it wasn't going to happen. But the questions kept coming to the point where when I had Alex Kantovich on the show, he made a joke about it because this is now our thing. So in honor of the new year, in honor of the new Biden administration, we are finally addressing this question, this topic head on. We brought on Lee Drutman, who is a senior fellow at the Political Reform Program at New America, and he's written a book breaking the two-party doom loop, the case for multi-party democracy in America. The thing to consider about this episode is that this is about more than just voting third party. This is an episode about how you should vote for libertarians or vote for the Green Party under the current system. The whole point of Lee's work and this book and this episode is the idea that we could actually pass structural reforms to Congress, to our elections, that would make the third party alternatives that all of you want much more viable. Yeah, that's exactly right. And this is the key thing about the Lee episode is that this isn't one of those like, oh, the case for a third party. It's like, no, it's our current party structure is fundamentally flawed, leads to bad outcomes in which nothing gets done. And we all hate it. And an actual roadmap out of all of that. Lee really, you know, he pulls no punches talking about Democrats or Republicans and the coalitional analysis of kind of where we see both of those things trending and shows us actually a way that we could maybe change some of the terrible outcomes that happen in American politics. So if we were ever going to talk about third parties in a intelligent manner, this is pretty much the only way to do it. So I was really glad to see Lee here. So do him and us a favor, go check out his book, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop. It's available on our bookshop. Just a reminder, bookshop is an awesome way to order a book from an independent bookseller that really needs help in the middle of the pandemic. And it gives us a 10% commission. So it's a win-win situation. You can find Find a link to our bookshop at therealignment.substack.com. It's our weekly newsletter, which delivers your inbox once every Friday, has transcripts, long listener feedback, has a comment section, a lot of different ways in order to get you guys engaged. So please do us a favor and check both of those out. So with that, we have one more thing that we need you to subscribe to. If you're hearing this, you are listening to the audio version of our podcast. And ever since the new year started, we have been airing the video versions of these podcasts. They're unedited, so you could get everything from awkward examples of me touching my ear to Thatchy Sauger's dog in the background that people are really enjoying in the comments section. So go check out our YouTube at The Realignment. It's really great. And now, favorite time of our episode, the question and answer. Just as a reminder, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, ask us a question in your five-star review, or send it in to realignmentpod at gmail.com. Here's what we got. Today's question comes from Apple from Ma Slater. It's titled, Mayor Pete and Cancel Culture. Love you guys and have so much respect for the podcast, but the last episode with the Mayor Pete campaign supporter slash funder buried the lead for me. 
Mayor Pete's people started the Trump Accountability Project, as in, let's cancel the Trump people and make sure they cannot earn a living. This is not what you guys stand for. Why did you not ask them the hard question? Maybe talk to some Trump people exiting the administration about where they're coming from, or what about it, or about how it feels when you're canceled for your political beliefs. They are the people who we should be for right now. I know you guys can do this. This is a good question, and I really appreciate it both because I agree that the Trump Accountability Project is a fundamentally bad faith one that, in many ways, is going to lead to bad outcomes. But it also gives us the opportunity to explain how we think about the show, Swati who was Mayor Pete's finance chair, had nothing to do with the Trump Accountability Project. So I don't want to ask her a question about something she has nothing to do with. What do you think, Sagar? Yeah, that's look, you're not going to get anything out of that that you haven't heard a million times. She would probably say something like, we need to hold people accountable, and I'm not actually even affiliated with that, and then we would all be talking past each other, and you guys wouldn't really get anything out of it. Instead, we tried to bring you one of the few opportunities where people who are worth somewhere around a billion dollars and influence our political system answer questions about how they influence the political system. I don't know the last time I saw an interview like that anywhere. In fact, some of the feedback that we got was, wow, I've never heard a rich person actually just be asked the most basic question. So what do you get from all of this money? So listen, I get where you're coming from. Yeah, the Trump Accountability Project is really stupid. I've decried it on Rising. I'm pretty sure I've talked about it here. But I want to add value to your life, you know, in the one hour maybe that I'm in your ears. And so this is the way that I just think about questioning and about uh, about the show. And the key thing is, if we ever book anyone affiliated with the Trump Accountability Project, we guarantee you we will ask that question. Exactly. And so with that, let's get to the episode. As always, a special thank you to the Lincoln Network for sponsoring this podcast. Really appreciate all that they let us do here. Let's dive in. Lee Drutman, welcome to The Realignment. Hey, it's great to be realigning with you all. (laughs) Good to see you, Lee. This episode has been a long time coming. Our audience is obsessed with the idea of third parties. Many of them dislike Democrats. They dislike Republicans. So a frequent question we get is, when are we going to see a third party? Now, your book focusing on multi-party democracy, the two-party doom loop, is a little broader than just the third party dynamic. So can you distinguish between what a multi-party democracy would look like and just the generic idea that we should have a Green Party or a Libertarian Party or Brett Weinstein's Unity 2024 to disrupt the duopoly? All right. So I think it's actually helpful to start with the idea of a third party that's somehow going to disrupt the two-party system in the U.S. And the reason why we never get that third party that disrupts the duopoly in the U.S. is because we have a first-past-the-post winner-take-all electoral system, uh, which makes it very hard for third parties to compete because voters don't want to waste their votes. Uh, and they worry that a third party would be voting for a spoiler. Uh, And ambitious politicians uh, and people with money want to pick a winner, 
and so they uh, try to take over one of the two major parties. They try to influence one of the two major parties because the two major parties are the two major parties. It's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy there, but uh, it, it also is how plurality winner systems work. So, you know, it's if if there were one party that could be more popular than the other two parties, it would be one of the two major parties. Uh, but the, the electorate is not so evenly split that, you know, there's a there's a centrist party or a left party or a right party that would be more popular. The two major parties do a pretty good job of building these broad coalitions, although that's one of the reasons why they can't seem to get anything done because their coalitions uh, electorally are a little too broad to then agree on what they're actually going to do when they govern. Uh, now, uh, a multi-party system emerges out of more proportional voting rules, uh, which involve multi-member districts and some proportional allocation formula. There are uh, as many forms of proportional representation as there are democracies that use proportional representation. So it's sort of a broad family of electoral systems. And we can talk about different types of proportional representation. But the basic idea is that you represent parties in proportion to how popular they are in the electorate uh, and votes are not wasted if they're not for one of the two major parties as a result of having uh, multiple uh, members representing any given electoral districts or in a few cases the entire country is one giant electoral district. So Lee, what do you make of, I mean, I'm sure a lot of our, this was a question we got all the time about voting third party, like that entire debate. I mean, my friend Joe Rogan, you know, he was like, I voted for Joe Jorgensen just as a protest because I wanted to make it known that like I wasn't satisfied with both. What do you make of that dynamic? Because we faced it a lot here um, ahead of the election. And people were like, well, you know, I think I'm going to vote libertarian because I oppose regime change wars. And it's like, OK, well, look, if that's like the one thing you care about, like you should probably vote for Trump. And if somebody's like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to vote for the Green Party because I want more like I want the environment to do better and I don't trust Biden to do a good enough job. It's like, well, yeah, but like when it's Biden versus Trump, like you should probably vote for Joe Biden. So what do you make of that dynamic generally? Well, in our two-party system with winner-take-all elections, a vote for a third party is generally going to be a, a wasted vote. Uh, now, I mean, the history of third parties in America is that third parties actually have made some important differences by elevating issues uh, that the two major parties were ignoring and forcing them to take those issues seriously. Uh, but we're, we're in this rather uh, unique moment in U.S. political history in which the parties are extremely polarized, in which U.S. politics is very nationalized, in which the person who controls the White House, the party that controls Congress, is extremely important and consequential. So under these conditions, it's really hard for somebody to uh, say, well, I don't care who wins Trump or Biden, I don't care which party controls Congress, I'm just gonna vote for a third party when that control of Congress is at stake. And when you know that voting for a third party is gonna effectively be wasted. Now, th there is, I think, certainly some value in still voting for a third party because to the extent that 
if you believe that we ought to have more parties, the way to have more parties is to support electoral reform, uh, some form of proportional representation. But the way to pressure the major parties into doing that is to make them fear that uh, without doing that, they're they're going to lose voters to to third or fourth or fifth parties. I mean, if you look at uh, the conditions under which proportional representation has been adopted in many democracies, it's often in moments of uncertainty when major players, major parties uh, are really uncertain about their political future, they feel threatened. And proportional representation is a way to is almost like a peace treaty to say, look, you know, we're, we're going to set rules that are fair for everyone, and then we'll all compete on fair terms rather than we'll have rules that push out the competition. Mm-hmm. And just to clarify, if listeners don't have the exact picture of this, could you articulate how proportional representation exactly looks in different democracies? So maybe the United Kingdom, um, other places like that. Well, this is a myth that United Kingdom is actually not a proportional democracy. It uses the I same. I just learned something. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it is a parliamentary democracy, yeah. and people often confuse parliamentary and proportional democracies. Uh, parliamentary so wait, let me says, test my knowledge. Is France proportional? France is like yeah. France is weird. Okay, <laughs> um, France is. Uh, the, I mean, France uses a two-round system, yeah. which um, it, so I would consider France more majoritarian than proportional because they use single winner districts. Uh, because of the two-round system, they wind up having uh, it's quasi-multi-party. I mean, the, mm. the UK is extremely majoritarian. Canada is very majoritarian, also parliamentary. France is sort of a sort of a middle ground and then they're they're sort of Got halfway it. between parliament and presidential france is a, a kind of weird hybrid system so break but, break down proportional then give us some yeah examples. so the so the purest form of proportional representation is probably the netherlands uh in in the netherlands the entire country is one electoral district and people vote for a party and then the parties get representation in in the in the parliament there uh based on the share of their votes. So in the Netherlands, uh, there is a party for the animals. There's an animal rights party. Uh, There's a party for the seniors, a pensioners party. There's 13 parties in the parliament. Now, now the, um, uh, the Dutch seem to do okay with it. Israel has the same system, which Mm. is sometimes people say, you know, Oh, you want us to become Israel, uh, you know, I mean, Israel has 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 its own set of problems, and we can talk about the way proportional representation works in Israel. Uh, but you know, I, I think the you know, the general uh, uh, assessment among electoral scholars is that probably that level of proportionality is a little bit too much. That you know, you want to find a balance between having you know a diversity of parties but not so much fracture so that's you know uh, the netherlands is kind of an extreme example um uh, so the the systems that uh scholars of democracy uh who study electoral systems tend to like uh are there's you know basically probably three three kinds uh one is, which which i like is is what the uh, Irish use, which is uh, they have multi-member districts, so three to five members per district for their parliament, and uh, they use uh, 
of rank choice voting there. So the, the you vote for multiple candidates, you rank them, and then for any given district, the top five finishers after transfers go to parliament. And uh, the 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 Irish typically have about three to five parties. It's a it's been a, a consistently pretty uh, functional democracy. And you know, I think those the systems of rank choice voting uh, or vote pooling, as sometimes people would call it in the uh, uh, comparative international electoral system space, uh, it's good for countries that are diverse, that are trying to build coalitions across different racial groups. Um, another system uh, that is, uh, you know, seen as to, to be pretty effective and, and fair is what Germany and New Zealand both use, which is uh, a system called mixed member proportional in which you get two votes, one vote for a representative from your district uh, and another uh, for a party and the uh, share of seats in the legislature corresponds to the party vote, but you also get a, a constituent representative. So that is a, a nice blend between having, uh, you know, somebody who represents your district uh, and you know a, a fair share of votes uh, for for all parties. And you know, I think think we would say that New Zealand and Germany are both doing pretty well as democracies. Um, Interesting on New Zealand is that that was a relatively recent innovation. They voted on that in the 90s after an extreme uh, period of dysfunctional politics in mm. which trust in political institutions in New Zealand were extremely low. So that's really interesting. I mean, the way I'm kind of surveying the system right now is we've got all-time trust, low trust in yes. institutions and the media. I mean, this basically we refer to in terms of the doom loop. And if there was ever going to be a time, I mean, maybe it would be now, although I still think it's incredibly unlikely. I, I want to mull something over with you. I'm basically thinking that the Republican Party, as it currently stands, and listeners will have heard me say this before, is really in uh, is in big trouble because I think they have two kind of irreconcilable wings one of which is like 15 to 20% of the upwardly mobile kind of suburban white normal coalition that was normal to George W. Bush and to Mitt Romney. These people are very sick of Trump. They disapprove of Stop the Steal and all that. At the same time, Trump is tremendously popular in 68 to 70% of the Republican Party. That includes like the QAnon wing and more. And so you have this situation where, you know, especially impeachment. I mean, as you and I are talking, I see an article come across my screen about Mitch McConnell, like privately wants um, Trump to be gone. He wants to vote in order to convict him. I mean, that would be, I think, one of those cleavage moments of the 15 to 20 percent of that party away. And then 68 percent becomes increasingly minority in times of like crisis like this. Where, look, even the Democrats, with all this going on, they might be slightly larger than these you know, two kind of factions, but they're not like an all-out majority party. Why is all of this bad for democracy? And it kind of refers to the doom loop, as you're saying. I'm curious if you agree with that kind of coalitional analysis. Yeah, I, I think your, your coalitional analysis is correct. Um, so uh, why is this bad for democracy? I mean, I think it's bad for democracy because we have two parties and one of the two major parties is increasingly being taken over by just a, a, a sort of radical extreme anti-system movement. 
uh, which, you know, I mean, there are there are some genuine concerns powering that and some mm-hmm. just outright racist concerns powering that, but it's congealed into this wild conspiracy uh, supporting movement that that is, you know, basically uh, uh, of the view that elections that they don't win are illegitimate, and it's it doesn't fit uh, in the in the sort of realm of normal democracy parties. Now, you know, in, in any given system, you know, there might be you know a, a fifteen to twenty percent of the electorate that has these extreme anti-system views in a particular moment of economic transition or demographic transition, as is happening in some Western European countries. But they're not one of the two major parties. They're not a party that has a chance to win control of government. Uh, and you know, democracy basically depends on the major parties understanding that you know there is a process by which we decide who is in power and that process is legitimate fair equal to all sides and that's the foundation of democracy democracy relies on a shared sense that there are basic rules that we all agree on that they are fair they are legitimate and we are going to acknowledge uh, the results of those uh, of elections around those rules and what we have lost in the United States at this moment is that shared sense on which democracy depends, that shared sense of elections is legitimate. And in one famous definition of democracy, democracy is a system in which parties lose elections. Mm. Uh, And the Republican Party is, as you said, the the dominant share of the Republican Party is uh, a party that does not abide by the basic uh, shared agreement of democracy, and that is extremely, extremely dangerous. And we, we're already seeing how it's destabilizing. And just because of the nature of binary political conflict, with a lot of people who don't feel like the Democrats really represent them either, you know, it, it's quite possible that Republicans could win back unified control of government by uh, 2025 with uh, an extreme anti-system uh, wing of the party uh, dominant. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in your earlier point because this relates to the debate about the Republican Party, especially during and after Trump around oftentimes third parties could elevate issues that the established parties aren't engaging with. And you referenced the bad things, racism, et cetera. But you mentioned there were some good things. I want to actually get into those good things. What are the issues that you think either a left-leaning or a right-leaning third party could elevate under the current system? Like what's what's missing from the policy portfolio? What's missing from the menu that they're under a more, under a less polarized version of American politics you'd see raised? Well, you know, I, I think there are a number of issues where we would be devoting a lot more attention uh, to, the, to the topic. I think climate is probably the most important Important of those issues, I think the, uh, the 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 economic changes that technology uh, have have driven and the inequalities of uh, of the economy that you know both both within cities and in uh, across the density divide. I think we would be talking a lot more about those. Um, you know, I, I think. Uh, 
I think I think we I mean I think immigration would still be an extremely contentious issue because it always is but you know I think at least climate and the the sort of economic consequences of technology uh, we would be dealing with more productively. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fascinating to that point because I think back to, I mean, if you, I guess what the last successful third party moment speak, I guess was Ross Perot, um, yeah, one of the yeah, high so. water high water marks really of third party in the modern political era, and he got a significant chunk of the vote. I mean, yeah. what did he get, like twenty percent or something? Like yeah, that? I think nineteen percent, but yeah, yeah, right. And, well, and if you think back to it, you're like, wow, okay, nineteen percent for an anti globalization, anti trade message. I mean, a lot of those voters probably sat out elections or were inspired by more of a Trumpian message, and so in a way, you know, kind of speaks to what you're saying, which is that third parties can elevate certain concerns that people are feeling left out of the system. I guess one of the things I want to return to, though, is you talked originally here about one of the problems of the two-party duopoly, which you both completely agree with, is around the people who are in charge. Um, how much do you think that the current establishment benefits from the two-party system because as you said there are people who are making a lot of money or use a lot of money in order to keep the architecture of the current strict structures of both the republican and the democratic party together what role do you think that that plays kind of like a you know more establishment control of both sides and we'll get into whether that's even effective in a bit yeah well i i I want to go back to to Ross Perot because I mean there mm-hmm. are a few important important points to make about Ross Perot's candidacy as you talk about being kind of an anti globalization, um, you know, as well as you know uh, about the about the deficit, um, you know. So I mean, Perot is successful for a third party candidate in 1992 precisely because I think a lot of voters feel like you know Bush Clinton like what what difference does it make right? So mm-hmm. like doesn't if I don't see much of a difference between the two major parties, I can vote for a candidate who's kind of an anti-system candidate. It's kind of a, a little bit of a middle finger to the sort of you know establishment in Washington. And you know, also to the fact that Perot was raising concerns about globalization that uh, both of the two major parties dismissed. There was sort of this neoliberal consensus uh, around the importance of global trade. So, you know, you know, th- th- to the point that third parties often raise concerns that you know if it, if the powers that be in Washington had took concerns about globalization and its uh, and the sort of distributive effects of free trade on the economy, uh, as was raised by by Ralph Nader and Pat Buchanan yeah. as well, uh, you know, but those third parties were dismissed as spoilers. And so nobody took their concerns that seriously. It turns out that that they actually had an important warning uh, about the consequences of uh, of unmitigated free trade. Mm-hmm. That if if we had taken the you know uh, if we if we had more parties uh, and there had been more of a threat to the major parties, they they probably would have adopted uh, and adapted sooner. So uh, uh, to the point about the the establishment, does the establishment benefit? I mean, at this point, I'm I'm not even sure who the establishment is. Mm-hmm. You know, th- things are things are in flux, uh, and 
I mean, I, I mean, I think you could sort of say that there's sort of an establishment wing of the Democratic Party that's maybe a little bit cozier with business and a little bit more uh, upper class. You could say that there's sort of an establishment wing of the Republican Party that's a little bit more classic country club uh, Republican. And, you know, I mean, they, they've certainly benefited economically uh, for, for quite a while now. Um, you know, do they benefit from the two-party system? Um, I don't know. I mean, they benefit from uh, the the sort of status quo and uh, gridlock of politics. Right. But you know, I think they're also threatened in in the same way by uh, right. instability. And I mean, I think I think the the way. To think about that is, you know, that I think a lot of folks in the the quote unquote establishment are in fact, you know, extremely worried about the sort of wild swings in policy that mm-hmm. come from this this intense polarization. Yeah. But that being said, to build on this, the thing is, Sagar, I'm thinking about your establishment construct. There are plenty of quote unquote members of the establishment who would like a less polarized national politics two-party system. Think of something like Larry Hogan. The reason Mm -hmm. why Larry Hogan, governor of Maryland, and Charlie Baker, the governor of Massachusetts, the reason why they have have no political future outside of their states is because there is no, frankly, national party that represents their actual ideology, which is socially liberal, relatively fiscal conservative, and just moderate on those actually policy approaches. Look at Meg Whitman, um, who, you know, former uh, CEO of Quibi, rest in peace. But before that, she was in charge of Hewlett Packard and ran for governor of California. Arnold Schwarzenegger also fits into that category as well, too. These are people who, if there was a more country club Republican establishment party that reflected their politics, they would actually be much more likely to succeed on the national stage. So I do think there are many ways Mm -hmm. that the members of the establishment outside of the DC beltway probably don't like the system. Same thing is true Mm -hmm. for Southern Democrats. If Doug Jones was able to run in the South, in Alabama, in a less um, polarized state, it'd be totally different. But yeah, Lee, what do you think about that overall picture? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that I argue in in my uh, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop book is that we used to have something much more like like that four-party system with Larry Hogan, Charlie Baker as, you know, the 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 liberal Republican Party, you know, probably George H.W. Bush was kind of the last president from that that wing of the party uh you know but but yeah a long storied tradition of new england republicans uh who were liberal who were quite different from the kind of western uh uh, very conservative republicans even though they shared a party and similarly you had liberal democrats uh, alongside the conservative southern democrats so in that four-party system you had a much I mean, a much broader diversity of perspectives, but you also had a lot of overlapping factions. So this was uh, a very different political system in which members of Congress could work together in this sort of cross-partisan way and actually work out compromises on pretty important legislation. And, you know, it ensured that, you know, regardless of whether Democrats or Republicans were in power, uh, that, uh, you know, different parts of the country and both country and city were going to have at least some 
some sense that that they had a, a a role to play in the in the existing government. And now what's happened is that you have a, one party that is you know the the party of cities and and sort of professional class mm-hmm. suburbs, and another party that's the party of the exurbs and sort of the you know the, the downwardly mobile suburbs and a, an education divide, a geographic divide, a cultural divide. Whereas whichever party is in power, about half of the country feels like this is not a party that that represents anybody like me and that raises the stakes raises the polarization and creates tremendous ultimately uh, you know a tremendous instability in our political system which you know who, whoever you are um you know is probably yeah. not something that you want to see happen there's a semi-ironic contradiction to this entire discussion. So we're talking about how there's this duopoly, both parties, they're getting more and more impenetrable to third party and independent runs. Yet at the same time, you mentioned this on Ezra Klein's podcast that you released around this launch of the book, the parties themselves are weaker than ever, as in the Democratic National Committee doesn't actually disperse large amounts of money. Um, It's not as if the platforms themselves really even matter. You go back to the 50s and 60s, the decisions over what the parties represent at the national convention was a big deal there. So as we're seeing more and more diffusion of power away from the actual political parties, we're still seeing this lack of representation problem happening. So I want you to just speak to that because for context, we recently had um, a woman named Swati Mila Varapu on. She was Pete Buttigieg's national finance chair out of Silicon Valley. And she talked about how she raises money for candidates. She has a actual training cohort that she puts together. She's filling all of the functions of what the Democratic Party used to fulfill. In an earlier time, she would have run to be head of the DNC, but she isn't doing that because he wants to be head of the DNC. The worst thing for Pete Buttigieg's career would have been if he'd actually won his <laughs> DNC chair race in 2016. What a what a disaster for him if that had been true. So can you just speak to the fact that people hate these parties, they have so much power, but they also don't yeah, have brittle. that much power. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is a great paradox. Uh uh, because on the one hand, they're they're the the one hand they're the structuring force of our politics. On the other hand, when you poke at them and you try to see what's there, they're they're kind of ethereal. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think one way to understand it is that you know the, the parties are coalitions. Uh, they're they're networks. Uh, uh, maybe you could even think of them as, as blobs, as, uh, as, as, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, as one uh, political science paper uh, argues. But in order to hold together, they ha- have to be kind of amorphous. Uh, because you know, once the party leaders, which is you know the leaders in Congress, the the president, uh, you know other public figures, take strong stands on on too many issues, that's going to create division in the party. Uh, right. So in many ways, the goal of party leadership is to uh, avoid the issues that will divide the party and focus on the issues that will unify the party. And what are the issues that unify the party? Well, we're not the other guys. Now, mm-hmm. if you watched the Republican National Convention, you 
would have learned that the Democrats are a fundamental threat to America. Uh, but you wouldn't have learned much about what the Republican Party was actually going to do with power uh, other than keep the liberals out of power. Um, if you watch the Democratic convention the, the week before, uh, you would have learned that the Republican Party is a threat to democracy, and the Democratic Party has, you know, lots of people who speak in broad principles, but you wouldn't have really gotten a sense of what the Democratic Party was going to do either. Now, th there's a reason that both parties focus on the threat of the other party is because nothing unites like a common enemy, uh, but the there's a there's a weakness in that uh, because the parties can't agree on anything except that they're not the other side. So politics is all about demonizing the other side. And then when the parties get into power, they have to figure out what they actually are going to do with it. Yeah. You know, I mean, look at the, the I mean, the Democratic Party is is like shocked that it actually has a trifecta now. And, you know, <laughs> Biden's been been, uh, you know, preparing a lot of executive actions. And there's, you know, you know, maybe, you know, Democrats are, are out of the gate with um, HR1, S1, which I think is an important democracy reform bill. Uh, but like, it's not clear what their plan is going to be on, yeah. on, 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 on. And what's much. that bill, by the way? The HR1, S1, the For the People Act. It's a, it's a, it's a big democracy reform bill that, you know, deals independent redistricting, you know, right. protecting and expanding the right to vote. Uh transparency in, in campaign finance and some public funding for campaign here's, finance. Here's one thing problem though we have Lee as you're describing this. I'm like, yeah, this is hellish. Here's a problem. Trump won more votes than he won last time by doing that. And Biden just won more votes than any presidential candidate in history. So Trump by being Trump and just being like, screw the libs actually won 75 million votes. And Biden by basically saying screw Trump, 181 millions. That's a lot of votes. So it actually got more people more democratically engaged than ever. So like, how do you actually self-exit this system when people like it? I mean, let's be honest. Like, like With I, your own I preferences. Was, I, yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> well, for real. Like, I, I was I was driving through this like rural. It was like rural Nevada, and I saw this sign. It's just like Trump. Like, f your feelings. And I was like, that's it. That's that's what it's all about. That's the whole thing. And then it was the same thing, you know, around my neighbor, you know, we live in DC and it's just like all these like, bye Don. And there's like, yeah. he's orange and like, thank you, Dr. Fauci. And I was, I'm like, that's it. That's the soul of the, and you know, I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but this is what gets people going. So it's like, if we want to self exit, right. what are we going to do here? Uh, negative partisanship. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, nothing, nothing mobilizes and motivates people like anger. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I, I don't know, uh, you know, if you ask all these people who who have the the Biden or I also saw any functioning adult twenty twenty, yes, might have seen it seen all, a, seen, seen it a few all. of those too. Um, <laughs> right, you know, I like I don't think people would say that that they enjoy this. Uh, you know, I mean, the the level of anxiety that people feel um, is not, you know, I mean, yes, people are are voting at a higher rate, but people are not voting out of enthusiasm and joy. They're yeah. voting out of fear and anxiety, which are an anger to, you know, which are all powerful motivators. Uh, 
you know, I mean, I, I, I would I would rather have a democracy where fewer people vote and, you know, we, we get better <laughs> public happier. policy. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, like, you know, if if that were a trade off. So this yeah. is where I have to speak up for our two to three MSNBC watching liberal viewers, if you are out there, what they are going to say is that, Lee, your argument basically boils down to a mix of light whataboutism and light just sort of both-siderism in the sense that the peril we face right now is you have a Republican Party that is launching an insurrection and all this talk about multi-member districts, all this talk of reform should just come down to basically three things. Let D.C. into the U.S., make D.C. a state, make Puerto Rico a state, pass a national popular vote so Republicans can't win the way Donald Trump won in 2016 again. Those are the big things. Because at the end of the day, this person would argue that the problem we face isn't that we don't have enough parties and enough views represented. They would just say we have a party that believes in a majoritarian rule in this country and one that doesn't. And those are the reforms we should focus on, not multi-party democracy. And towards the start of your book, and credit to our um, amazing interim Emma for pointing out this point. You, your rebuttal to everything I just said was basically if you pursue that path, it could result in an electoral disaster. Here's the thing, though: in Georgia, Republicans made that argument, and Democrats won anyways. So now that Democrats have power, if I'm thinking ruthlessly, if I'm a Democrat thinking, "Look, Mitch McConnell just replaced RBG after promising not to." Screw it. Let's just do it. We're going to suffer electorally in 2022, maybe, but this is a deaf sport. So what do you say to this broad articulation? So, I mean, look, I I, I agree that, the, you know, I, 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 I would support. This was not fair, for, by the way. I'm just yeah, throwing yeah. this at you. <laughs> for, for D.C., I mean, I think yeah. the Puerto Rico question is more complicated than, you know, a, a, a typical cheerleading MSNBC viewer uh, you know, <laughs> would, would want to uh, wrestle with, um, you know, yeah, I mean, look, the, the HR1 package of democracy reforms make it easier to vote. You know, I mean, all, all of that seems like no brainers, like baseline democracy, you know, uh, uh, stuff. But, you know, is, is that going to give Democrats, you know, a permanent majority? Like, probably not. It's a pattern that, uh, with very few exceptions, the party that controls the White House loses elections in the midterms. You know, even with Donald Trump as the Republican candidate, you know, Republicans uh, picked up seats in the House, uh, held on to more seats in the Senate, held on to a bunch right. of state legislatures. Donald Trump got 74 million votes. Uh, you know, so the Republican Party is going to continue to be competitive. And, you know, to the extent that Democrats, uh, you know, push, uh, you know, major democracy reform, I mean, yes, I, I think that's important. Um, but, you know, Republicans will, uh, you know, probably try to escalate back. Uh, but I mean, I think a broader question, and, and this is, this takes us into the territory, a little bit of democratic theory is whether we want to have a simple majoritarian view of democracy, um, or whether we want something that I would consider to be more of a complex majoritarianism, which is, I think, more consistent with our institutions, which, you know, if you if we want to go back to Madison and have a discussion about political philosophy, which I would 
I, I could go on for hours about, but you know, it, it, there's the idea that what makes democracy stable is that you have fluid coalitions and there's, you know, their allies become enemies, enemies become allies. There's no permanent majority, no permanent minority. And, you know, the, the simple majoritarian view that Democrats should just beat the crap out of Republicans, uh, you know, like, okay, and then what? You know, I mean, I, you know, I think all these cries about 74 million people being ignored, you know, they're the true people, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, that's, <laughs> it's a little bit of posturing, but at the same time, like, okay, so what happens if 74, 70 million people, uh, you know, feel like they have no path to representation in our national yeah, institutions? Bad. That's <laughs> bad also. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I like that you said that. You're like, look, yes, there are like bad faith Republicans being like, 74 million spoke up and I'm going to object to Pennsylvania Electoral College <laughs> law, even though I don't represent Pennsylvania in order to carry that out, because apparently that makes sense. But look, it is true. <laughs> 74 million people did vote for Trump. You do not want 74 million people to feel like they don't have a voice in our institutions. Here's the question, though, and this is the real problem that we've been confronting a lot here on this show. Does it really matter? Trump was in office, and, I mean, you know, he still got banned from Twitter. Like, he still got banned from Facebook. In terms of who rules non-governmental institutions in America, it ain't the right and in a many and and it ain't even remotely concerned with many of the 74 million who voted for Trump as you said if the democratic party is increasingly an upwardly mobile you know uh, uh, urban slash suburban party and then you've got a downwardly mobile increasingly less educated one then the highest institutions the commanding heights of american cultural life are just going to be dominated by two debates progressive leftism and center leftism those are the only things that really matter so I guess my question to you is, is not is it too far gone, but are we talking here about something that's just way different than politics? Because I don't see how, you know, all these 74 million people, they had a voice in Washington and it was basically just this like bumbling buffoon, Trump, who would speak and he made them feel good because he pissed off a lot of people. But in terms of actually carrying something out in terms of policy, nothing really happened. And in many ways, liberal institutions are stronger today than they were when Trump took office in 2016. What I'm asking is this, is this even a political party question? As in, now that we have institutions in American life, think tanks, Hollywood, finance, tech, etc., dominated by a worldview, monopoly can't solve this, politics can't solve this because these are non-governmental institutions, does democracy and politics in America still give a voice to those people, even if they were to vote and to take power once again? Sagar, let me add to give an example for the listeners because I get where you're going. Does having a upper middle class suburban Republican party and a Trumpy down market party make a difference if every other institution is dominated by some form of yeah. center left and progressive coalition. Yeah, that's exactly. what it, that's what it's basically. So you could create, you could take the Republican party and break it up into five different parties and you could take the democratic party and break it up into another five parties. But under Sager's framework, if we're looking at societal division, if we're looking at the lack of institutional trust, you would still have a reality, but in specific ideology 
represented in different parties would right. still dominate. So you still would see the Larry Hogan and Charlie Baker party coalition with o- the operational center left party. So how do you, that's the point of like, would this make a difference mm-hmm. there? Well, I mean, I think part of the, part of the, the challenge of the, you know, so, I mean, you could argue that, that, I mean, Trump was a buffoon, but mm-hmm. you know, there was something in in the 2016 version of Trumpism that spoke to the you know kind of left behind, uh, you know, down downscale uh, parts of the country, and you know, that part of the reason why Trump was able to take those folks for granted and just not do anything on on their behalf other than you know, scream at how liberals were too politically correct is because those folks had nowhere else to go. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that if you had a, a, a multi-party system and you have a lot of voters and, you know, I don't know, may, maybe it's, uh, you know, I mean, there's, you know, I, I think it's it's a challenging thing to sort of separate out what of Trump's coalition is just like purely like, you know, racist people who genuinely like just just want to mm. feel superior, and um, what part is you know people who you know are genuinely feel like their 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 economic uh, futures are going downhill, and they want and and you know so sure. and those two get kind of lumped together. So I think you know if you if you had a party that or if you had multiple parties that were actually trying to compete for that slice of the electorate and offer some programs and some uh, you know some policies that actually were designed to help them rather than just channel their grievance, uh, those folks would do better. Now in the in the current system, that's you know that's not really possible because the Republican Party can just take them for granted, uh, mm-hmm. because where else are they going to go? Same way the Democratic Party can take a lot of their constituencies for granted, because where else are they going to go? Uh, but in a multi-party system, the parties can't rely just on demonization of the other side. They have to actually distinguish themselves based on policy. If you look at like the Democratic primary, for example, which was kind of like a multi-party system and that there were multiple candidates, yes. what, what happened is that the candidates didn't just 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 take a crap on each other and and say that they the other side you know the the other candidates are all terrible they said here here's my policy vision and here's how it's different and here's why why you should vote for me this is so two questions are coming up here the first one and people are screaming at us for not asking you this did under your vision did the bernie wing of the democratic party were they screwed over by the political step? Well, by the DNC, because something we just recurrently run into, and this is the problem of keeping like w- like you know unwieldy coalitions together. There's a large proportion of the Bernie Sanders base who thinks that the Democratic Party today either rigged primaries or is structurally against them. Like, how do you what, what do you think about that a critique or statement? Um, like, we frankly like don't agree with it, but I'm just curious like what your perspective is. Well, look. I, you know, I think there are, I, I mean, I, I don't see any evidence for it empirically, but I think there is a sense that, you know, I mean, certainly the, the folks in the sort of Democratic Party, quote unquote, establishment, you know, have not been particularly enthusiastic about Bernie's candidacy. There was, you know, certainly a sense after, um, 
after the South Carolina primary that the establishment wing of the Democratic mm-hmm. Party was coalescing coalescing around Biden. Um, you know, I, I think within the Democratic Party, there there is, you know, at least among Democratic Party elites, there there is certainly a, a divide between the, the more progressive wing and the more quote unquote establishment wing. I mean, I think Biden's going to do a, a, the best he can to kind of straddle that as as president. Um, but, you know, certainly, you know, as as AOC said, you know, if this were any other country, she and Joe Biden would be in different parties. Yeah. And, you know, I think if the uh, social democratic left of the Democratic Party had the space and freedom to say this is our vision of the American economy and it's distinct from the you know the, the moderate Democratic Party and you know you can vote for either of us and we'll go to Congress in proportion to our share in the electorate um, and you don't have to to choose between one of us in a primary uh, you know we'd see a much more vibrant, debate about these policies, as opposed to a debate that happens behind closed doors with party leaders saying, all right, you better all get online uh, with whatever our candidate is, because otherwise Trump's going to win or otherwise mm-hmm. Republicans are going to win. And, you know, that vibrant debate is, is essential uh, to the deliberative process of democracy and voters, you know, uh, ought to be able to choose between multiple parties and know what they actually stand for and be able to send a clear signal. Uh, to choose between just two options, you're sending a very noisy and unclear signal because you don't know what what voters are actually voting on. But you have five or six parties, and you know it, it becomes a little bit clearer, so, and politicians can respond. Mm-hmm. Could you speak to how money and politics would work under the system? Because what's interesting about your package of reforms, you mentioned this, is none of this technically would require a constitutional amendment. A lot of this is decisions that Congress could make. But as we're thinking about how the mechanics of this party system would work, like let's say you have the Country Club Republican Party. That party is firmly a party that corporate America and many big donors would firmly get behind. At the same time, though, the Trumpy Patriot Party, let's say it, would not be particularly able to raise money to the degree that the country club Republicans or the mainstream center-left party would be able to. So I'm guessing you would probably support some form of campaign finance reform. Um, But how would that just operationally work? How would that look? Because if you really cut, because the thing is, the thing about Trump is the the deal the deal with the devil that center right Republicans made with Trump was look, we don't like your immigration stuff, we don't yeah. like Mexican rapists, but if you give us tax cuts, we'll keep the coffers open for four years, and if you do health care, um, you know, try to get rid of Obamacare. That's basically it. But if you just get rid of the need for them to coalition together, they wouldn't pay the bills for the cultural conservatism or even the things that the good faith version of Trump person is interested in. So how would this all just work under that framework? Well, I mean, I, I, I absolutely support campaign finance. Um, there, there is a very good uh, public uh, funding small donor provision in HR1, which would match uh, every $1 of small uh, donor donations with $6 of public funding, which I think would would um, be important. I, you know, I mean, I think already given the, the shift in fundraising to, to the internet, um, there, there has really been a, a small donor internet fundraising revolution. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Bernie Sanders certainly raised a ton of money. Uh, so I, I think, 
you know, we should in- ensure that, you know, uh, parties across the political spectrum can raise money. You know, I mean, I think one way to, you know, one provision, um, you know, in a, in a sort of reform like this could be that, you know, the, the, the parties themselves get public funding. Uh, and that's kind of how most European democracies operate is that, you know, the parties have a certain amount of, of funds to, to operate with so that they're competitive. Um, you know, I, I've, worried about the corrosive role of money in politics for a long time. It's it's a perpetual problem. Um, but I think giving voters more choices and more than just two choices, um, you know, creates space for for parties, you know, I mean, some parties might be funded by big dollar donations. Some party, parties might be funded by small dollar donations. And, you know, that's... Uh, you know, I, I'd like to see more small dollar donations and fewer large dollar donations. Uh, you know, I'd like to see a, a different jurisprudence than we have around campaign finance. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, but it is what it is to a certain yeah, point. That's yeah. a whole other podcast. Last question for you, Lee, um, is how how does this all work um, in your vision? Outline just like the general reforms that you would want to see, how you would want the system to look and then how maybe not how realistically it would get done, but if it were to get done, how would it get done? Yeah. So, um, you know, here, here's my proposal, um, uh, for the house, I would have multi-member districts with ranked choice voting. I would eliminate house primaries entirely because they're, they're not necessary under this system for people to have a voice. And I would increase the size of the house to 700 members. Um, for the Senate, I'd put in place uh, ranked choice voting, um, and you know, with a, a, a two-round. Uh, you know, I, I like actually the the Alaska model, uh, which just is in place of a top four primary and then a, a an RCV general election. I think is is probably the best thing we can do for the Senate without a constitutional amendment. Uh, and you know, I, I think if we combine those two, that those would go a long way towards opening a, a multi-party system. Um, you know, h- how could that happen? You know, I think it basically would happen if there's, uh, you know, a, a, a more pronounced split in the Republican Party and mm-hmm. the the sort of, you know, 10 or 15 percent of Republicans who uh, are at odds with their party uh, realize that, you know, they need this reform in order to survive and thrive. And the Democrats recognize that, you know, the, the greatest danger would be for the Trumpist wing of the Republican Party to not only take over the Republican Party, but take total power. And that in, in the long run, you know, this would be uh, just a better, fairer system for everyone. And Democrats understand that the way in which the current electoral system works hurts them by disproportionately. And to do all of this, Lee, do you need an act of Congress? Constitutional yeah, amendment? Okay. All no, right. no, yeah, you need an act of yeah. Congress. Article 1, okay. Section 4 of the Constitution gives Congress pretty broad powers to uh, determine the rules of its own election. It's a power that Congress has used repeatedly. Uh, yeah, no constitutional amendment would be required. Uh, I mean, if if we want to talk about constitutional amendments, I, I could <laughs> rattle Got off a list. long list of things sure. I'd like to change about our Constitution. But, uh, you know, 
that's a really high bar, especially in a deeply polarized time. Well, Lee, thank you so much. This is really helpful. It's a pressing topic as everyone is demonstrating their interest in ways we can change the system. Yeah. Yes. Well, really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. And, you know, this is certainly a time to be thinking big because what we have ain't working. <laughs> well said. Well said, man. Thanks for listening to the episode, guys. We really appreciate it. As always, if you could help us out, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Sign up for the Realignment Substack newsletter at therealignment.substack.com and check out our bookshop for all of our book recommendations and all of the authors who've appeared on the show, which is available in our Substack. Thank you, as always, to the Lincoln Network for supporting the show. We will see you guys on Thursday. 